1: From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Reflect, respect, and raise up.
0: Take the bands off our bodies. (laughs) Women, look what we did.
2: Take equality seriously. For real.
1: Hey there, and welcome back. My next guest has devoted her life to combating gender-based violence. Professor Anita Hill is a lawyer, an educator, and author, and we had the honor of welcoming her to this year's Webby Awards, where she was on hand to accept the best public service and activism Webby on behalf of Pineapple Street Media and the Meteor for the podcast because of Anita. In 1991, she bravely traveled to Washington and testified to the US Senate that then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas sexually harassed her. 30 years later, that pivotal moment continues to shape our country and how we deal with gender-based violence on social, political, and cultural levels. I can't say enough about Professor Hill's contributions to history, bravery, and willingness to continue doing the hard work. In addition to teaching at Brandeis, she's the author of a book called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence, which has been described as a book only Professor Hill could have written. She also hosts her own podcast, Getting Even with Anita Hill. We start off talking about the career she began to forge after those 1991 hearings.
2: Well, uh, let me just start by saying people may not recall that in 1991, I was teaching at the University of Oklahoma College of Law. I'd just gotten tenure there a few years earlier. um, And I thought that I was going to remain there for the rest of my career. I hadn't any plans to change. I thought I'd do law teaching forever. turns out, you know, by the mid-90s, I was questioning whether or not that was going to be the rest of my life. Uh, and, and so I uh, made a decision to leave not only Oklahoma, which was where I was born, uh, but I also left teaching law. Uh, I, excuse me, let me, I, I, let me correct that. I left teaching in a law school And the teaching law in a law school is a very different experience from what I'm having today, which is to teach law in a policy school. But I've moved... from Oklahoma to Massachusetts, um, teaching at Brandeis University in a graduate program, which is a PhD offering program, as well as many other degrees. And so I get to teach a variety of students, some of whom will become lawyers, but that's not their goal. Their goal is to Um, be able to analyze policy, to be able to direct policy, to write policy um, that will be affecting all of us. And So I teach a combination of law and policy, and um, that's very different. I'm in a very different place geographically as well as professionally than I ever expected to be.
1: Some of that change reflects your interest in not just the law around gender violence, right, but the economic impact of gender violence, the social impact of it. That That's a that's a shift you made in your career, something you were interested in pursuing. Am I right there?
2: You're absolutely right. I made the shift because after trying to address the problems just strictly through the legal system, Uh, I realized that gender-based violence uh, really happened and could only be corrected if we looked at it more broadly and looked at the problem holistically. So what I had learned over the years was that gender-based violence, let's say in the form of intimate partner violence, leaves people homeless uh, it lot makes in, in some instances, people lose their families, they lose their children because of gender race violence. And so the the court system doesn't necessarily address that, especially when it comes to the homelessness problem. So I, I realized that I was being very limited in terms of what I could do uh, by just looking at the problem from a legal sense. So I wanted to study with people and to uh, work with people to see not only how um, gender-based violence was impacting people's lives in terms of their economic well-being, in terms of their jobs, in terms of their housing situations, but also in terms of how the culture and our culture uh, was... Uh, either helping to alleviate the problem or contributing to the problem, and what I found is that culturally there are a number of contributions that that people continue to make today uh, when it comes to the topic of gender violence. We, you know, we pull out still myths uh, and in tropes that have. Proven to be not factual, but you know, we tell victims that the problem of their experience isn't so bad. So we minimize the problem. We, uh, in in many cases, blame victims of violence for, especially sexual assault and rape, uh, for being at the wrong place uh, or for wearing the wrong clothing. And I put wrong in quotes. And so we we still as a culture haven't, uh, haven't turned the corner in terms of what our response is or should be to the problem. We have learned, I will say over the last 30 years or so, we have learned to identify the problem, to identify the behavior more readily and to acknowledge that it exists, but we have not, come to terms with how we can resolve the behavior, how can we respond to it, either in terms of our response to victims or in terms of our response to the people who perpetuate it.
1: You know, so what you're you're identifying there, just to sort of focus on one specific thing, which is the the victim blaming, have you gotten some further insight in these years as to why we're still stuck on that as an idea? Is it because we're uncomfortable with what the results would be if we didn't do that? The, the, the potential prosecution of the, the person who did it or um, having to go through that, the discomfort, is that what it is? Or share a little bit with me about sort yeah. of your, your sense of why culturally we still do that.
2: Well, I think it's a combination of factors. I don't think there's any one factor. And I do think we have a hard time taking away power from powerful people. And usually what happens in in a situation, whether it's harassment or assault um, or yeah, intimate partner violence or any of the other types of violence that I talk about in my book, what happens is that that at the core of it is a power imbalance of some type and so uh when you're talking about harassment in the workplace for example there is uh, very often peer harassment but also more often when you talk about quid pro quo sexual harassment in the workplace it there's a power imbalance a manager or someone who has a higher position in a workplace is harassing someone else. And uh, y- y- we uh, we tend as a society to take the word of the male who is more powerful. We tend to value that individual um, more than we value the, called, let's call it, say, at the lower level employee. And uh, so, We're much more likely to simply say, well, let's don't make a big deal out of it. Or, you know, in other words, she's not worth protecting. We value men's status and we disvalue or devalue women's status participation or even their right to bodily integrity and security. I think there are economic reasons for that. I think there are cultural reasons for it. Um, I think there are all kinds of ways that we need to be looking at the problem, but the first thing that we need to do is to acknowledge that that is what's going on.
1: And you've called this a, a crisis, right? You know, like it's an epidemic in society, and it has it has real economic consequences, not just for the people involved, but for like our our our, our country and for the world as a whole.
2: We are losing. We're losing in terms of productivity, effectiveness of people in, in, in the workplace to start. We're losing uh, because of healthcare costs that go along with uh, much of the violence that is experienced. Um, we're losing just in terms of our overall productivity. But unfortunately, we don't keep track of that. So we can't say exactly how much in total the loss is. We know that there are individual losses, but no one really is keeping track of how much we are losing as a country. And I think we're also losing um, in terms of our ability to uh, participate in our democracy. So I think the democracy suffers when people are um, pushed out of positions or, or pushed out of homes or pushed out of communities uh, because of uh, a threat to them. Uh, to their safety and well-being. And, uh, you know, we haven't even begun to quantify what that is and exactly what that means. When we talk about it as a crisis, one of the things that, that I, I contend is that our government has to respond to it as a crisis and the government should be leading us in terms of measuring the real harm and understanding why uh, that we need a response at the highest level.
1: In your conversation with Dr. Ford, um, in the, I think it was the penultimate episode of the podcast, you both talk about this concept of expectations, how how you're supposed to act. Uh, for doc, Dr. Ford, and the story focuses on how she thought she was supposed to act in the Senate, like literally how to behave, how to walk, and some of the things she had learned as a child, learning about the Senate and, and the chamber and sort of revering it. Um, and you talked about how um in your life you've developed a sense of how you had to act in order to be believed um can you talk a little bit more about that
2: yeah i think that culturally we 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 look for first of all the perfect victim uh we look for that perfect individual who's going to come forward and so all of our lives we have we have been taught that our credibility whether it's about uh sexual violence uh or gender violence our credibility depends on how we present to the world but it's not just you know limited to um that setting when we're called upon or when we try to step forward to get someone to respond to violence i mean this is something that we live with every day so as a young professor. Who had one, uh, when I was first started teaching law school at the University of Oklahoma, I remember showing up for work w- uh, one day in what I thought was a uh, perfectly respectable pantsuit. And um, uh, a female colleague said to me, you know, well, you're not going to teach in that, are you? Uh, because we were expected to wear skirts. I mean, and this was, you know, this was not the 1920s or the 30s or 40s. This was in the 1980s. And so you have to present in a certain way to be credible, to be a credible law professor. Um, and so one of the things that I, I I thought that my experience with Christine Blasey for that was different was that they, the kind of respectability that she could attain was very different from my own because um, there were, she, she knew that she would be accepted in certain places. She knew that she would be accepted or uh, how she could present herself in a way uh, that would, uh, that people would acknowledge that she belonged in a space. And I knew from a very early on in my life that there were places like the halls of the Senate uh, that I would never be seen as belonging um, because of my race and gender combined. In 1991, for example, when I testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, there were two women senators, two women senators uh, of the entire 100 group of senators. The women didn't even have a bathroom dedicated to them. On the floor where their offices were, they had to go down to the floor where that was part of the public experience uh, for people who were visiting the Senate to, to use the bathroom. Therefore, they had you know very little privacy, very little you know real attention to to the dignity of their office um, because of their gender. So we, you know, when I testified, of course, these two women senators were white women. They had never seen a black woman senator. And so it was I was not something that they had ever seen before. And I think just that alone, uh, triggered something in them to suggest not only that I didn't belong there, but what I had to say didn't need to be heard in the Senate chambers.
1: I mean, I think you made them very uncomfortable, right? Back to sort of what we were talking about earlier.
2: Yeah, just like they were uncomfortable giving women senators bathrooms on the same floor and it 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 you know there are the, the things that we have to connect i think in terms of people's experiences that we we sort of take for granted that we all once you get to a certain point then we can all enter a space and be received in the same way uh but that still is not true and it certainly wasn't true in 91
1: as I was listening to you talk about that and just the overall that idea around expectations, the thing that I was thinking as you were as you were both discussing it was how low our expectations are for men in power and their behavior. Which which is not to to say that people don't have individual responsibility for their actions that have done this. They a hundred percent do, but uh, to some extent, the, the the country's reaction to your hearings at that time and all the actions between that and, you know, today do not necessarily raise the expectations or require or ask that, that men in power behave in a different way than they did before.
2: Oh, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, in, in fact, we have, you know, language that that, that tells us that. I mean, we... we, we have uh, grow up with language like boys will be boys. And, you know, of course that's just what men do. And uh, from my point of view as a as a uh, law professor, I've seen that kind of language show up in court uh, decisions, even Supreme court decisions from Justice Anthony Kennedy sort of gave the impression that some, in in one case that uh, involved a, fifth grader, uh, and another fifth grader who was abusing her was that, you know, that the really uh, egregious sexual behavior that she was enduring was just normal childhood behavior and activity. And uh, so what we're told really is, you know, even by the highest court in the country, we're told that that's just something we have to put up with. So our expectations are very limited, and and our expectations of male behavior. Um, and then, but then you have to ask yourself: if that's the case, then why aren't all men <laughs> harassers and abusers? And we know that's not the case. So we need to figure out, you know, why we are catering to those who are
1: interesting. i want to I want to shift here a little bit and talk a little bit about internet and internet media and the role it's played in this sort of changing landscape and journey over you know over the past you know twenty, thirty years. Um, whether it be Twitter or social platforms or podcasts like yours, you know I think these spaces have act uh, these spaces act as a form of documentation and and can be great ways to to reach larger audiences. Do you think they've created more space for feminism and particularly black feminism to, to thrive?
2: I think they have created space for a, a number of things. I think they've created space for affinity groups of people so that they can go to social media and be in conversation with and engagement with people who are like them or who have the same interest. and um, I, I, And so I think that's just, that has been a plus in and of itself. But that also leads to people being able to get messages out. And I think Black feminism has has really uh, benefited from it. You know, I, I come at this from a position as a professor. And I, of course, you know, have seen the growth of a number of the young Black feminists who are online and using uh, tech platforms and the internet to, to express themselves and to share their messages, e- even beyond the affinity group that they're in. Um, I, the conversation that we're having right now uh, about critical race theory uh, in, in many ways is being led by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and she's used the, the internet as a powerful media to um, to get the word out about what critical race theory is and isn't, uh, and it's having not only educational impact, but it's also having political impact, the work that she's doing. So um, I absolutely think that there is a, a huge benefit for us, even though I acknowledge that
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Uh,
2: the marginalization of people, uh, women in, uh, and women of color in particular, is, is very high. And even at the level of junior high school, one of the uh, the startling factors that... that um, I think we need to take into account is that, yes, young children, especially children who have been marginalized because of their sexual identity or their gender identity or racial identity, uh, are experiencing um, the internet in a way that is very positive for them. But they're also being exposed to negatives, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic information at a, an increasingly high rate. At one point, I think in 2018, the numbers uh, were startling, startling and, and high for uh, tweens, we'll call them, like 64% reported that they had experienced racism or sexism or homophobia or some kind of hate over the internet. Even as they also say that, you know, but I find on the Internet the opportunity to talk to people like myself who might feel isolated where I live, but I can reach out on the Internet and connect with people. So it's a mix. And how do we how do we um, balance the mix in favor of affirming humanity? Uh, on, on the internet, as opposed to um, really devaluating and further marginalizing humanity.
1: Yeah, I, I, I so appreciate that sort of nuanced view of it. Um, I can tell you, you know, from our perspective here at the Webby Awards, you know, we've seen over, you know, 20 plus years, we've seen so many examples of, of you know, people in marginalized groups who would have been alone, you know, 30 years ago, and as you say, who found, you know, young LGBTQIA black children, like all many, many different groups who were isolated in some way and faced some form of discrimination, and were able to find peers or support, you know, essentially because of the internet and the incredibly meaningful difference that made in their life, you know. So th- th- that's a real, real thing. And on the other hand, as you note, um, you know, at scale, uh, you know, lots of women and specifically women of color and many, many others are are really targeted in some of these places. And so I, I want to kind of connect that and ask you about, I've heard you say that you want to make sure that we don't leave it to the younger generation to solve these problems, that it's, that it's our, it's our responsibility as much as anyone's. And that the problem is that we are, we are letting the younger generation inherit our broken systems. And I I would suggest that this targeting that you see on the internet is really an inheritance of of sort of a pre-internet system. It's just the internet is now is now sort of taken on a lot of these broken systems and biases, and we're sort of we're seeing it play out again.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree that this this kind of sentiment is out there. It has been out there. It it's you know continues to be expressed that the 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 internet is just a platform for expressing it. But one of the things that makes the Internet maybe a little uh, more dangerous than some of the other ways of expression is that the anonymity and the lack of accountability or even traceability of some of the information that is coming in and, um, and, and as well for different media. I mean, the great thing about the internet is that it's available to very young people, but some of them are not really ready emotionally and psychologically to deal with the information that they're getting. Um, so I think we can do a couple of things. So one of the things that we can do is to make sure that um, our young people are more internet savvy that they know how to navigate systems so that they're not exposed overexposed to information that is that is really harmful to them psychologically and emotionally. Um, And, and more importantly, that they are exposed to the information that can be helpful to them in their development.
1: And is that something you think about from a policy perspective as a as ultimately a professor of policy how How can the federal government and how can we write policies and create policies which which enable those things to happen
2: right I think about it in terms of policy um i think of, about it in terms of education i mean how do we educate children uh on the use of of the internet and and how then if they are exposed, how to? What's the response? Because what happens very often is that you just create confusion uh, when and there's no one that they can go to 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 um, to get the answer to how what they're supposed to be thinking about it. You know, one of the things that I think is uh, an example of where this is very been very important. The internet has been is now that there is this movement across country to ban books. And uh, we had one very close to where I live in a local neighborhood where they were attempting to ban books, both uh, that were directed at children, queer children. And the internet you know, allows for the um, anti Queer studies and and queer inform- information about the, uh, being queer, what the identity and what it's like and how it feels, um, but it also has the um, you know it it allows all of this information to come in at the same level the the anti mm-hmm. uh, and what I think we sh- we need is. Much more of the information that affirms people for who they are and what their identities are, and um, and and how uh, and to show how these books can be helpful to all children in schools, and so we, we need to think even uh, beyond the children who are directly impacted by this, but we need to be educating all children uh, in our schools about the importance of respecting one's and, uh, identity and respecting the identities of others.
1: It also, it also ties back to, at the end of the day, who are the people who ultimately run these companies that mediate and moderate all this information and do the people who work at these companies have, you know, a, an appreciation for these issues all the way, all the way up to the top, right? Because otherwise if they don't, then you really just have it. Like I, like you have said before, it's an inheritance of, you know, the, the previous power structures into this power structure is really no different. It's just a sort of somewhat different setting.
2: Well, our markets peddle power yeah. and they thrive on power and, um, and, and, and in many cases it's it's the enemy of really progressive change. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. If if the people at the top who are trading on uh the the negative information uh are not accountable, self accountable or accountable through the government or the accountable through from their consumers, um then we, you know, we will continue to perpetuate it. And, and what I can't understand is that how do they live with knowing that it will impact their children, their own children? Um, and so maybe if we could convince people to see it from the ideas of their their own loved ones, then maybe we could... Um, gets more attention to the, from the people at the top, whether it's the top of the government or the top of our businesses.
1: Um, you also have a great podcast, which came out earlier this year. It's called Getting Even with Anita Hill, which I love the title. Um, you described it as a podcast about equality and what it takes to get there. Tell me about what inspired you to to start the podcast and what, what are you hoping to to accomplish with it?
2: Well, as with so many things, I'm inspired by young people, and teaching gives me an opportunity to be inspired every day. <laughs> um, well, and, and, and what I realized that I, as somebody who had grown up um, in the 50s and the 60s, that I had a very limited sense of what equality was about and how to achieve it, you know, it was. Um, always drilled in for me that equality is about giving people opportunity to have a job or to go to a school, um, and what I realized as an adult is that that doesn't take into account once you give them the opportunity and they even enter these places that things are going to be equal. And so, I thought the way that we think about equality and and where it needs to be present and where our thinking needs to be present is very limited. It's structured around that thinking that we had in the 1960s and the 70s mm. that were you know, somehow governed by laws and, and defined by the courts. Um, and I wanted to do something that thought about things outside of that. So I, I do have Thelma Golden talking about art space. And studios and and museums and, the, and how that needs to be equalized and and, and uh, equally respected, uh, and and the ways that people engage in those spaces can change. I, I you know I, I did an interview with Misty Misty Copeland who talks about equality in ballet, where. Um, black bodies are not necessarily respected and valued and why that is why the ballet aesthetic does not accept the black body in the same way that it accepts the white body um you know i talk about um venture capitalism (laughs) with arlen hamilton Uh, um and and uh, and, and, and in terms of gender race violence, I talked with W. Kamal Bell about uh, his documentary series on Bill Cosby and and how to balance those conversations so that, you know, we hear from the scores of women in the same way that we, you know, imbalance their voices against of uh, this very powerful man with, with powerful contacts in the media and a huge reputation. Um, so uh, that all of those things are not necessarily what people, or n- not any of them are necessarily what people think of when they think of equality. But I think the more that we have those kinds of conversations, Uh, the more that we can get to an actual real equality in this country. In other words, that's how we get even.
1: In the episode, I think it was called With a Little Help from My Friends, you spoke to Emma Emma Coleman Jordan and Beverly Guy Sheftal, as you referenced there, um, about the importance of just being heard as Black feminists, even if it didn't change. Things. Um, can you talk more about that, just the importance of being heard and why that can be considered a milestone for activists? It seems to be like a, a, a theme of the podcast, I feel like.
2: Yeah. Well, part of inequality is not being heard. I mean, we we can't be equal if our voices are not heard. If we don't have a place, a platform for them, if like the Internet. If, if the Internet silences more of us, then it, uh, it amplifies us then, you know, we have not, uh, we're not going to ever be equal. And so, um, being heard allows us to tell our stories, to tell our messages, to offer our perspectives. And it's the start, I think, of truly understanding what, uh, life is like for different individuals, people who we call, think of as different, you know, I mean, for me, um, I'll just go back to 1991, you know, there there was not supposed to be a 1991 hearing. I was not supposed to be heard at all. And it was only because my statement was leaked and a whole set of factors intervened, including the fact that women from the House of Representatives went over and pushed the Senate, including the public, there was public outcry um, largely from feminists across the country to, to hear me. Um, and, and I, I don't want to, you know, be, uh, self-congratulatory, but I believe that changed the conversation around gender violence in this country. Um, Absolutely. and so with just being heard, um, can change outcomes in different ways than what we think. Now, of course, we all know that Clarence Thomas was on the Supreme Court, so it didn't change that. But I, I guess that the what I'm trying to say is that there are consequences, even though some outcomes don't change. There will be consequences mm-hmm. that people will be more informed and more engaged and more able to, some people will come forward. Other people will become allies. Rules will change. The public can change, and and so um, that's why I say being heard is 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 the start of progress.
1: You know, the work of fighting for gender equality and racial equality, equality for LGBTQIA folks, it's really life work, and it's it's really hard work, um, and it sometimes leads to burnout. And I feel you especially you know, a career in that, in that field and doing that work, but also I know someone that other people call to share all the trials and things they're going through and looking for support from you. I mean, that must be incredibly meaningful, but also emotionally, it's a lot, right? I, I just, I feel like you of all people probably have have dealt with more than anybody of any of it. How do you stay grounded? How do you restore yourself? And how do you how can, what advice can you give to other activists out there to to continue on with it, even when it can be so hard sometimes?
2: Well, one of the things that I say comes really out of that podcast that I did with Emma Coleman Jordan and Beverly Guy Shaftal is that find people who are doing like thinking, like work or who who are with you and, and that will be your support. That'll be your aid that that that's what will keep you going when things get tough. Uh, But it also finding those people energizes you and gives you new ideas and staying up to date and, 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 and using what power you have, but then understanding that you don't have infinite power that you've, you, know, you you can't put all of the weight of the world on your shoulders.
1: One thing I, I wanted to share with our listeners um, that happened at the Webby Awards and that made me so optimistic and sort of overall excited about the future was seeing the reaction of our 1,000 people to you being there. And what I, what I saw there was something that I knew about myself but I hadn't necessarily thought about with others. And that's just the incredible impact you had on young people in the 1990s. And so while maybe 70% of the people after that, you know, um, hearing said they believed or they, did, they they believed Clarence Thomas or whatever it was, there was a whole generation of people that were my age that were, you know, maybe in their 20s or younger, who also watched it. And you became, you know, an icon for and something that we all really, you know, treasured that you did that. So. Yeah. Sorry to get teared up, but it really it's just amazing to see how meaningful it was to so many people now yeah. and you see it visibly when the people are around you.
2: Well, I absolutely that evening was thrilling. I did not expect the reception that I got. I was a little bit overwhelmed and I like to pride myself in saying it, it, it's being somebody who doesn't loser cool (laughs) but uh um it it was hard not to lose your cool but i'm going to tell you a story and and i can end with this um i was at any uh at a high school once it was a it was a votech school in northern california um fairly you know low income or economic community um my kids went to the Botech school because they probably weren't going to go to college and they needed to find things to be able to do to get employed. And, I, you know, the, we were in the cafeteria setting and the, they lined up for the mi- mic. And so one of this young person who from appearances identified as male came up to the microphone. And, um, and I, you know, you never know when young people talk exactly what they're going to say. But he said something that stuck with me. And that was, how does it feel to know you've changed the world? And this was coming from a teenager. And, and I, you know, we didn't have a chance to talk too much. But, you know, and, and I don't know that I felt like I had changed the world at that point. But I, also, but I knew that I had changed somebody's life and um and so that's what i carry with me that idea that i can change somebody's life and this sort of answers both questions the question that you had, how do you mm-hmm. keep going uh, yeah. keep knowing that you can change somebody's life
1: professor hill what a what an honor to have you on the webby podcast it was just an absolute pleasure for myself and everyone on the Webby Award team and i know everybody at the webby awards to have you join us this year Um, And thank you for all the continued work. I I know that's a sentiment that's shared far and wide.
2: Thank you for uh, inviting me. Thank you for having me at the Webby's. I'm so glad to have discovered the Webby's and the people who are there and and, and creating. And honestly, to tie into the story that I was telling before, I do believe that the people in that room are changing the world. and and changing it for the better. So thank you.